0: One of the core ideas in the evolutionary behavioral sciences is the idea of evolutionary mismatch. The idea of evolutionary mismatch essentially says that in a lot of ways we are existing in environments that do not match the kinds of environments that we evolved to exist in.
1: Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast. A place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognised clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose.
2: Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host Nathan Rose. I'm very pleased to be joined today by a Professor of Psychology in New York, Doctor uh, Professor Glenn Guia. Welcome Glenn.
0: Hey, thanks so much for having me, Nathan. I look forward to it.
2: Ah, absolutely, my pleasure. So today we're here to talk about uh, evolutionary psychology and also a bit of a twist, it seems like you've put on to it with positive evolutionary psychology. Um, but we might first focus on evolutionary psychology. Um, it's probably a little bit unfamiliar to a lot of our um, my audience. But before we get into that, I suppose, can you give us a bit about your background? Because as I understand... Evolutionary psychology is probably not so mainstream in in psychology. How did you end up focusing on evolutionary psychology?
0: Sure. Well, if you want, I can go kind of way back and answering that particular question, um, which I think probably provides good context for it. So I was an undergraduate student in psychology at the University of Connecticut in the late 80s and early 1990s. And I think like a lot of um, psychology students, I found myself interested in the field, but I was slightly disappointed in some ways. The field felt a bit disjointed. I would find one professor would sort of present some research and some concepts, and a professor down the hall would sort of present something either incongruous with that or unrelated to it. And there did not seem to be like a sort of um, broad framework that tied things together. It was almost like a lot of very disjointed ideas, and that was true until I took a course titled Animal Behavior with a professor named Benjamin Sachs, who studied rat sexuality for the most part for decades and decades, and his class simply again simply titled Animal Behavior ended up being all about evolution and behavior. and. It was a mind blow to me. It made so much sense. The first few class periods, he talked about basic Darwinian ideas, um, natural selection, sexual selection, mutation, um, all these kinds of things. And evolution applied to behavior. And then he used that same framework for helping to understand Uh, behaviors of various species, behaviors of various classes. So he would teach in in the class, we would learn about freshwater fishes. We would learn about insects. We would learn about non-human primates. We would learn about dogs and cats. And we would learn about behaviors such as helping behavior, cooperative behavior, aggressive behavior, mating-related behavior. And this simple framework, this powerful framework of evolution, just shed light on the entirety of it. And I was blown away. I was like, this is the class I wish I had taken my first semester when I was 18 years old and it influenced me profoundly. So when I went on to get a PhD a few years later in social psychology at the University of New Hampshire, I was fortunate to really be encouraged to sort of be autonomous in my own research I started studying intimate relationship behavior, which is a common topic in social psychology. And while I was working on my PhD there, we had a visit by David Buss from the University of Texas. And David Buss, still to this day, is possibly the most famous living evolutionary behavioral scientist. Great guy, amazing research, he's just been doing Just he's been an animal. He's been doing lots of research on evolution and behavior, largely on human mating and why we like the things that we do and potential mates, why the conflict that we see in mateships takes the form that it does, why jealousy is such a universal issue and universal problem across the globe, all kinds of things. And he gave this amazing talk at the University of New Hampshire as a guest lecturer one day. And That to me sort of was it. It sort of took this stuff I had learned about when I was younger as an undergraduate, applied it to um, advanced human social behavior, which is what I was studying at the time. And I'd say since then, I've really just studied human social behavior from an evolutionary perspective, and it's the only thing that makes sense to put it really simply you can't unsee it it's kind of like Oz you know once you see Oz you cannot unsee Oz and once I really started to understand human behavior from an evolutionary perspective I'm going to say for maybe three plus decades since that's been it so so that's kind of that's the story
2: yeah 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 I mean I've only looked at it briefly more recently. And yeah, I, I think the same. It's once you see it, you can't unsee it. It was the, I think the eighth that understood the universe that the book I read recently. And it's like, ah, oh, it makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's dive into an evolutionary perspective. Um, so can you first outline, like, it, it seems like obviously modernity is a a, a, a blink of the eye in terms of our time on this earth. And this is where we're at and we're stressed. And, um, what, what I find striking, at least in Australia, is probably not that dissimilar to America, and we'll talk about um, mental illness shortly, is um, the rates of mental illness are really, really high in Australia, like anxiety and depression. But when you look at uh, a lot of the statistics over time, Australia, you know, we're known as a lucky country, like we've got good wealth and low inequity and so forth. Everything's going really well. It's heading in the right direction. It's not perfect, but we're actually sort of world leaders in, um, in anxiety and depression. So... Um, from an evolution perspective, as I said, modernity is only very recent and um, obviously we've evolved over a long period of time. So can you explain sort of our evolution and you know, how, our, you know, whether there's modern bodies with, with a Stone Age brain?
0: Sure. Yeah. So that phrase that you just used captures it really well. This idea of modern modern bodies with a Stone Age brain in modern contexts um, in a lot of ways. This is something of a caricature, but it's almost like we're the Flintstones living in modern-day societies. And the way that you describe Australia now as being advanced in all kinds of ways, you know, the United States is, is different in some ways, but is, you know, generally along the same lines. And I think what I'm hearing you say is, why is it that anxiety disorders are at an all-time high and depression is at an all-time high, all-time high and mood disorders generally speaking, are at an all-time high? And why are these things on the rise over the last 10, 15 years when technology and advances and advances in social science and advances in, in government processes and political science and, and all these things are, are advancing, yet it seems like we're really having a very hard time reducing these major issues with mental health issues being such major issues that they deeply seep into the fabric of society and cause problems at all kinds of levels. There's a great body of research by Jean Twenge, who's at San Diego State University, who has provided lots of research showing that in the last 10, 15 years, especially among young adults and late adolescents, we are seeing increases in every single one of these mental health disorders, the rates of those, and the rates are increasing, particularly among that age group, and the data that she's presented primarily are data from before the pandemic. So there's been this huge spike in the last 10 to 15 years, and we all know that the pandemic only exacerbated mental health problems on a global scale. So it's like the problem was already, people were already using the term pandemic corresponding to mental health issues. And the, the COVID pandemic has just amplified the heck out of it. So I think what I'm hearing you ask Nathan, is why if we have such science and technology and we're quote so civilized and all this, why can't we figure this one out? You know, why are there all these problems? I do think that the evolutionary perspective provides lots of important insights into that particular question. So one of the core ideas in the evolutionary behavioral sciences is the idea of evolutionary mismatch. The idea of evolutionary mismatch essentially says that in a lot of ways we are existing in environments that do not match the kinds of environments that we evolved to exist in. So we can think of this very simply with like animals at zoos and in the last 30 years or so, zoos have changed a lot because we used to have really cool, socially um, intelligent animals in these small cages without conspecifics, without other members of their same species around. And we would see signs of of sort of stress, what we would perceive as stress or anxiety, especially in in monkeys and other non-human primates. And there was a point at which people were like, well, we're really doing something terrible by putting them in these cages because we're putting them in environments that are completely different from the environments their ancestors evolved to exist in. They're not surrounded by family. They're not surrounded by um, other monkeys of the same species. Um, They don't have large expanses of space. They don't have the The treetops, the tree canopies that they evolved to exist in for their entire lifetimes and so forth. And if you think about modern humans, modern humans in so many ways lead highly mismatched lives. So I'll just give a a quick set of bullet points on that and then tie it back to this issue of mental health. Um, We have a higher proportion of processed foods than we've ever had before. Processed food seems good on the surface because we can manufacture it it easy, easily. It is cheap to produce. It is yummy, it is tasty. Right now, um, food manufacturers are capable of making foods that are way sweeter than anything that our ancestors would have eaten before the advent of agriculture and civilization. People can easily not exercise on a daily basis and so many people across the quote modern world exercise the right to not exercise and in fact you know gyms and and um, fitness centers and all this this is a huge industry in societies like ours and they're famous for taking lots of money from lots of people who very often do not attend nearly at the rate at which they want to attend or had planned to attend so people join gyms pay money for gyms but they don't go to gyms five six days a week like they say they were going to so often. And just the fact that we have to make ourselves exercise, that's a mismatch in and of Mm. itself. Um, and and then we get into the social world. So the social world also has lots of evolutionary mismatches. Under ancestral conditions before about 10,000 years ago, we know that all humans were nomads and in nomadic groups, you cannot have a city of 10,000 people. 20,000 people, 35 million people, like in Chongqing, China, for for instance, or New York City at 8 million people. Um, Under nomadic conditions, groups had to be small simply for logistical reasons because if all the food for the next three weeks is going to be over those mountains, we can't bring thousands of people over there. You simply can't organize enough. So nomadic groups tend to be capped at about 150 there's a lot of research showing that our minds are capable of processing social information for about 150 people. And beyond that, we kind of start to break down a little bit in those small nomadic groups. People were surrounded by kin, genetic relatives, and they were surrounded also by members of their clan with long-standing ties. So there weren't interactions with strangers were actually quite rare. And another thing that I think speaks more closely to the issue of um, mental health increases under recent years is, has to do with communication. So human communication under ancestral nomadic conditions, which by the way, provided the lion's share of environmental conditions that shaped human evolution and the nature of our evolved behavior. um, We, humans communicated exclusively on a face-to-face um, basis. That was, that was the only game in town. Before mm-hmm. the written word, which was well after 10,000 years ago, much rel- very recent, the only game in town was face-to-face communication. And when you look at research on how we communicate and behave toward people, A, that we know and that we expect to see tomorrow and the next day and the next, and B, under conditions where we are communicating face-to-face Very short version is we're nicer to people that way. If I'm communicating with you face to face and I've known you forever, and I'm gonna see you probably for the rest of my life and or the rest of your life, and we have huge shared connections, there's all kinds of motivation for me to be pro-social and to expect you to be pro-social. Let's fast forward to the modern day and especially thinking about young, young adults and adolescents. Right now, the proportion of college students' communication that is of the online variety easily surpasses 50%. Now, the data I have from on this tend to be anecdotal, but I regularly survey my students. So I teach college, and I usually have about 100 students at any given point that I'm teaching in a semester. And I'll ask them, just what percentage of your communication in the last week would you say was of the online, virtual, non-face-to-face variety. And I've had classes where every single student will say more than 50% of my communication was, was virtual, it was texting, was video chat, was Instagram, and this, this kind of thing. And when we think about communication behind screens, there's so many problems with it. One of, it, one of which is anonymity. So yeah. under anonymous conditions, a famous thing that we know for better or worse is people are much more likely to be nasty to one another. Um, I know my son who's now in, in college when he was in high school, at night sometimes I'd hear him playing video games and I'd go in before bed and be like, what are you doing? And he'll say, I'm playing Fortnite. And I'll be like, well, who are you playing with? And he's like, some, some dude who says he's in France and I don't know his name. I'm like, oh, he sounds like a nice guy. You know, this is... <laughs> Um, But this is the nature of modern day communication. And so when we see a spike in mental health issues and things like cyberbullying totally go hand in hand with all of this, there's research showing that in the last 10 or 15 years, cyberbullying, especially among adolescents and young adults, has spiked. And at the same time that it has spiked, we have seen in that same demographic huge increases, commensurate increases, in anxiety disorders, in suicidal ideation, in depressive disorders, and in mood stability disorders. And my take is that these are people who are engaging in such a high proportion of evolutionarily mismatched communication that we would be um, we'd be silly to expect anything else so that's i guess maybe a kind of long-winded answer to how an evolutionary perspective can shed light on modern me- mental health rates and yeah, issues brilliant. i might
2: just underscore that um so in in like natural medicine uh, my area there's often a lot of discussion right say so around the sort of physical mismatch around the lack of activity the poor diet of the processed foods maybe circadian rhythm disruption which is all important and Maybe causing like inflammation, causing that sort of depression, contributing to depression. But yeah, this concept of whether you want to call it paleo psychology is probably not um, being uh, described very well up until now. So I think it's yeah fascinating that evolutionary we um, evolved to be in small small tribes and with our king, as you said, like and um, having face to face communication, and a loss of that um, is linked to yeah poor mental health. Um, so anything else you just want to sort of underscore around that sort of the, the social uh, context of this evolutionary mismatch? Um, there was also like, I think we're exposed to like, you know, world events and so forth, whereas historically it's just been, you know, local issues and gossip and sure. um, topics, whereas now, you know, we're just inundated with things that's outside of our control and even context.
0: Yeah, it's a very good question because under ancestral conditions, this is one of the really cool things about evolutionary psychology. It really forces you to sort of just use this framework. I mean, there's there's other ideas and frameworks too, but this evolutionary mismatch framework is so powerful. It's like think about what could have possibly existed in nomadic conditions before the advent of agriculture and civilization, and then we can really start making all kinds of hypotheses. So. One example, um, Nathan, related to what you were just talking about pertains to politics. And anyone, conservative, liberal, progressive, anywhere in the middle, everyone will agree that international politics, world politics, politics, certainly in the United States, is a mess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's really no, no getting around it and we did a study my research team the new paul's evolutionary psychology lab did a study a few years ago where the hypothesis essentially was that our minds are not evolved for what we can call large scale politics so the whole idea of democracy and electing officials at all different kinds of levels and having those people engage in things like what we see in congress um you know in checks and balances like the entire system within a a state within a nation across nations with the things like the united nations all these kinds of things are post post agrarian post civilization and when we look at people's ability to process large-scale politics, people generally are not very good at it. Um, People are famous in the United States. There was recent research asking people, um, about I think it was about a third of the people didn't know which party. So in the United States, we have Democrats and Republicans account for maybe 90% of registered voters. And over 30% of registered voters in the United States don't know or weren't able to report which party is the one that's best known for giving out sort of um, I don't know give, giving out resources based on a socialistic model versus a non-socialistic model, which is pretty much that the Democrats are more aligned with, mm-hmm. that, with that approach than are the Republicans. But a third of registered voters didn't even like have that understanding, and that's kind of like a real basic difference between the the two. The two parties. So what our research did was we described what we call large scale politics versus small scale politics. Now we all deal with politics all the time. I sometimes I call it in my in my classes. I will call it Thanksgiving table politics. So before Thanksgiving and I'm not sure if in Australia you have a, you must have some similar holidays. Um, Where the family's regularly going to gather and and we'll you know, we'll give thanks for for whatever we're thankful for, for each other, for food, for health, for all these, you know, for all the things we should be thankful for. And there's always politics. It's always like, why did you invite this person? This person doesn't like this person. This person can't sit next to that person. Remember five years ago that happened and like these kind of things and that we humans have dealt with that kind, that level of politics. Always. So what we did in this study was we described small scale politics, like Thanksgiving table level politics compared to large scale politics. And we had people write brief examples to the best of their ability of both of those kinds. And what we found was that people were just so much more fluid and able to write about small scale politics. We timed them, we analyzed their writing for all kinds of parameters. And when people were asked to write about large-scale politics, they were just bad at it. And, and these were educated college students at a you know, a high-caliber um, undergraduate institution. And that makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective, because under ancestral conditions, there weren't multiple houses of Congress. There weren't complex processes for blocking bills and executive branch and let alone international kinds of politics these things just didn't take place just didn't happen so one reason that that modern day politics tends to be a mess in so many parts of the world is that in so many ways our minds did not evolve to think and process information at that level
2: right um which makes me uh think about some criticisms you've just mentioned there and around uh, evolutionary psychology um I think you've given good examples there of evidence but there has been criticisms and I'm just curious in your thoughts on like the, the just so stories and like yeah we've got this evolutionary framework but does that necessarily mean that's going to contribute to mental health issues what's your your view or um, rebuttal I suppose that some of the criticisms around evolutionary psychology
0: I think they're all wrong. <laughs> I thought that. No, um, but let me start there. I guess maybe that's a maybe that's a bit strong. But I will I will say that there's been tons of criticism launched toward evolutionary approaches to behavior. And I would say my entire career I've run into this. And I would say some of the criticism, some of the resistance in my mind seems to be sort of more valid than others. But with Mm. with that said, joking aside, I think it's healthy. I think it can get to the point of being too much and being sort of unhealthy and nasty. I will say that. But generally speaking, criticism, skepticism within the sciences is what makes for better science. So I'll give one example. I'm I'm very fond of the work of a guy named David Schmidt, who um, teaches about evolution and culture at Brunel University in London and very renowned. He's the president of the Human Behavior Evolution Society, so he's you know super renowned in the field. And when he was a graduate student at the University of Michigan in the 90s, he became very interested in cross-cultural research. And that was partly a response to criticism so people would criticize evolutionary psychological research and say you're making these broad sweeping claims about behavior about people all across the world and your data come from 120 20 year olds from the University of Michigan in 1991 so there's this issue of generalizability that if you're going to make claims about the nature of humans writ large in, in a very broad sense it only makes sense to collect data that is relatively representative and instead of instead of sort of crying about it or trying to fight that or saying no you're you're wrong david a very open-minded guy said you know what this is a really valid criticism and what he started doing even as a graduate student was large-scale cross-cultural research. So he was working closely with David Buss in the late 80s, early 90s on the first really large-scale evolutionary psychology study of mating preferences. And they studied, I think at the time, it was either 37 or 38 different cultures. And they found a lot of things that men versus women feel the same about across cultures so across lots of cultures most of these cultures men were more likely to to seek out partners based on physical criteria or health related criteria women were more likely to seek out partners that were based on things like status or resource acquisition and when you see these kinds of patterns emerge not just in your small sample at your small american or australian university but when you see them the same pattern in in young adults in 30 plus cultures around the world then you have a stronger case and dave schmidt again to me his research is so admirable because early on he he took that approach you know his response to the criticism was to really just come up with the best possible research he could listening to the criticism and responding in a very scientifically credible way and i'll say since then he's probably collected more data from more people cross-culturally on human behavioral issues, I'm gonna say than anyone in the history of yeah. behavioral sciences and what a model. And you know, his, his approach, he, he's super open-minded. So a lot of his research will show, here's very universal stuff. So the fact that men, if you ask men and women, how many lifetime mating partners do you think would be optimal for you you get a big sex difference. Men on average, at least in the most recent research I've seen on this, average men will say about 18, somewhere between 15 and 20. That's about how many they want or would would say is optimal. The average that women will say tends to be between about three and six or something like that. So it's very different, very big sex difference. And when people criticize that research for various reasons, what David did was he started, he said, well, let's see if this replicates across lots of different cultures. And What he found was a, a lot of evidence showing that it does replicate. But he also found that in certain cultures with, with um, variable features, such as maybe more individualistic or more collectivistic or a more socialistic approach to, um, to things or more empowerment of women these things tend to change a little bit. So there's a very big interaction between these evolved tendencies and cultural tendencies. And to me, that's the model. Instead of just saying, oh, evolutionary psych is, is right, and these other people are, are just politically motivated and motivated and unnecessarily critical. Instead of going that route, I'm a very big fan of, of David Schmidt, Schmidt's approach, which is, well, let's listen to the criticism and let's try and respond to it scientifically. Um, which i think is a very productive and progressive way to approach so you know i have seen just like any anyone who publishes in the under the the umbrella of evolutionary psych there's all kinds of criticism and i think that stepping back and listening to it and trying to sort of tease apart what's the sort of most valid part of that criticism and address it scientifically Evident in an evidence-based kind of way, I think is really the best the best way to do it.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, again, I'm not an expert, from, but from what I've seen, it looks like there's like um falsifiable hypotheses that can be generated, and you can create experiments and, and do research and and yeah, see if the data fits the the model. And it tends, from my my brief experience, it tends to fit the model. And also, like there's um um other primate data. That's also supports like a evolutionary psychology around you know anxiety and fears of snakes and so forth with monkeys and so forth. There's there's other bits of data now from animal models that all sure. add to it. Um, so I want to move on to yeah some specific mental health conditions. Um, as I said, anxiety and depression are quite prevalent in Australia and obviously the US as well. Um, and aside from the the social mismatch, there's also potentially almost adaptive reasons if we're thinking about a, a, a selfish gene approach it's to as my I understand it, it's to survive and reproduce and sometimes happiness is doesn't necessarily mean you know that um, that's concordant with survival and reproduction so things like anxiety and depression could potentially be useful for survival and reproduction so I'll start with um, anxiety perhaps there's this um, and this is from Randy Ness's work and I'm, I think you've discussed him before. That's where I first sort of stumbled across with this idea about the anxiety and how it's almost could be considered protective like this um, this signal detection theory that the smoke alarm principle. Can you explain anxiety from like an evolutionary perspective and although it's not helpful why it can be sort of normal?
0: Sure. Uh, yeah, it's a really intriguing area and this entire field that I'm sort of working with some people to try to develop that we're calling positive evolutionary psychology is trying to advance the goals of positive psychology which very much is about trying to help people lead richer lives, happier lives, more fulfilling lives, more meaningful lives. But what we're trying to do is evolutionize that that area. Mm. So a lot of the work that is done within positive psychology is very much focused singularly on how can we make people happier. And from an evolutionary perspective, as you're kind of alluding to Nathan, this is not really, this is not necessarily a reasonable evolutionary goal. That, and Randy Nessie, who's now at Arizona State University, coined the term Darwinian psychiatry, um, iconic figure in the field. He really was, I think, groundbreaking and showing that a lot of the negative emotional states, such as anxiety is a classic example, actually are common and are part of our evolutionary heritage because they had adaptive value and facilitated survival and reproduction of our ancestors under certain conditions. So someone who has zero anxiety. Across his or her life is really going to run into Problems if you're a college student and you've got your statistics exam on Monday and you've done zero of the homework And you you know not attended any of the lectures and you're expecting to do well And you have no anxiety at all going in there I got news for you. You're probably not going to do that great so students and I'm using this as an example because I teach statistics and I see anxiety in the students in that particular class Uh, With some regularity, certainly I'm not trying to get the students to be anxious, but the students who are really on top of things, who want to understand it, who get nervous if they don't understand just a little piece of it, you can see that it's very adaptive. Those tend to be students who are motivated to work hard and who tend to do well. So a lot of the negative emotional states, especially when we think about them as being human universals. So it was really Paul Ekman years ago, in a lot of ways is one of the the groundbreaking people in the field of evolution and behavior. He showed that the human emotion system looks and acts incredibly similarly across divergent cultures. And the classic example that he gave was studying New York College students compared with adults in a Um, an indigenous culture in New Guinea, and what he did was there was a huge language barrier, there was a huge culture barrier, one group was nomadic, one group was non-nomadic, and he would send, this was back in the 1960s, and he would send photographs back and forth with translators of people making different affective, classic affective expressions, happiness with a smile, anger with teeth bearing, and this kind of thing, And what he found was that people's American college students' ability to process the emotional states of these indigenous people in New Guinea and vice versa was almost perfect. That our our ability to read the emotions of people from a wildly divergent culture from our own is outstanding. And that kind of suggests that emotion processing and emotional psychological phenomena in general really go deep back in our evolutionary heritage, which suggests there's something important about it. And it's, and it's even the negative affective states probably had some kind of adaptive value. So I'll give one, one other quick example to sort of put a little more context to it. There's a famous personality trait called neuroticism. Um, Sometimes people frame it more positively as emotional stability, which is like the flip side of neuroticism. Neuroticism has been shown to have a strong genetic component or heritable component. Neuroticism shows a somewhat normal distribution in all societies where it's been studied. So you always have some people that are high, some people that are low, a lot of people that are kind of in the middle. And when you ask people, "What what do you think of mates or friends who are high in neuroticism, people tend to say, it's not really my cup of tea. I'm not really looking to have a lot of neurotic friends. I'm not looking for a romantic partner who's high in neuroticism. Consistently, people say, I would like a romantic partner who's very emotionally stable. I would like to be friends with others who are emotionally stable, which begs the question, why does high levels of neuroticism emerge in generation after generation, in place after place. And it seems to be that if you step back and think about, well, what exactly is neuroticism? It's kind of a low-level generalized anxiety disorder. We can think of it as that way. Someone who's high neuroticism is regularly anxious about X, Y, or Z happening. Now, hanging out with someone who's like that, that can be kind of annoying because it's like, chill, dude, everything's fine, right? <laughs> but on the other hand, if there is a problem, you know, if if you hear sirens and you're just like, whatever, I don't really care, and your neurotic friend's like, let's just go check it out, something bad could be going on, that attitude probably led to life-saving outcomes enough times under ancestral conditions that the mathematics of it is that it's beneficial, even though it's, it, it might not lead to attraction and mates, it might lead to conflict, it might have costs. Those costs would be offset by evolutionary benefits such as you thought that was a snake and it really was a snake, I thought it was a a stick because I'm not as neurotic and you know you survived and I didn't kind of thing. So, so general levels of anxiety that, again, we can think of like as embedded in this personality trait of neuroticism probably had all kinds of benefits in spite of a variety of costs as well.
1: Now for a short break to share a clinical gem. Rupert, aged 8, presented to his naturopath with chronic gastrointestinal issues and hyperactivity. His mother also explained he worked at 2 a.m. every night due to bedwetting which was believed to be caused by pressure on his bladder due to severe bloating. His practitioner prescribed a combination of partially hydrolyzed guar gum and lactobacillus plantarum 299V. After one week, his mother reported he was less hyperactive. At three weeks, his bowel motions had normalised, and at seven weeks, his bloating had lessened significantly. At this point, he only went to bed once a week, a huge improvement from seven weeks earlier. To learn more about the combination of partially hydrolyzed guar gum and Lactobacillus plantarum 299V, visit metagenicsinstitute.com.au. That's our clinical gem for the day. Now, back to the show.
2: So do you think if there's a, a genetic component as well, that these people that have a more of a um, you know sensitive trigger, can, can therapy, any sort of therapies, help them um, become want to say more normal, but less, less anxious?
0: Sure. That's, that's a great question. Um, from, from an evolutionary perspective, I think that we need to think about therapy carefully. And I do think that the evolutionary perspective suggests some pause regarding a lot of traditional therapies. Um, one of the a common thing in therapy is that your therapist should be a stranger. And if you look under ancestral conditions at or nomadic conditions today at kind of who helps whom people don't go to a stranger that they're paying with some kind of copay related to their insurance um who they found on the internet who has good ratings you know there's like the entire process of finding guidance in an external unbiased expert i'm not saying that it's completely problematic but the evolutionary perspective in my mind suggests at the very least we should maybe kind of take pause and step back. There's lots of research on the efficacy of various forms of therapy. Some certainly work more than others. Some certainly work more for certain kinds of conditions. PTSD seems to respond well to cognitive behavioral therapy relative to others, for instance. So there certainly is a a time and place for therapy, and especially with increases in mental health issues across the globe, You know, I always am telling my students, the mental health industry, we used to not use that phrase, you know, now we use the word industry to talk about careers and mental health that is that big and that it's growing. I think it's it's really important and needs to be taken seriously, but the evolutionary perspective suggests, I would argue, that we might not want to get so stuck on therapy and psychopharmaceuticals as, quote, the answer. Here in the United States, we have such a medical model of thinking about Mm -hmm. mental health that sometimes we are hard pressed to actually sort of step back and give pause and step back and think, well, what are the best ways? What are the normal ways? What are the ancestrally standard ways that we would have expected people to have addressed things like depression and anxiety and negatives? affective things. Um, Under ancestral conditions or in nomadic groups around the globe, people tend to congregate. They tend to get close with with family members, consult with family members, consult with sort of wise elder people within the the community who are known entities, who are known people um, to them. So, I would say that there certainly is a place for for therapy and for psychopharmaceuticals but I think that we're in a model where we're so stuck in thinking this is the solution, this is how we do it, that we sometimes have a hard time stepping back and saying, well, this is one way to address these issues. But yeah. under ancestral conditions, there, was, there were different ways to address these kinds of issues. Um, one piece that I wrote about for Psychology Today kind of recently is talking about changing your situation as therapy. So from from a social psychological perspective, social psychologists are famous for studying how little situational changes can have big behavioral and emotional outcomes and effects and that humans are really sensitive to situational characteristics and demands. I had a student recently who was having all kinds of problems with roommates. She was living in this house. She was so anxious about it that she wasn't able to go to class, wasn't able to, to take exams. Was having, I just felt so bad for this kid. And I remember I said to her, and it's very, very rare that I'll get into like the role of counselor or therapist or even anything close to that. But I said to her, I said, Jesus, sounds terrible. I said, do you have another place you can go? And she said, well, I kind of thought about that a little bit. And I talked to her a couple of times about this. And I said, well, do you have family close by? Like, can you commute? Do you own a car? And after about a month, long story short, she moved in with a close family member, about an hour drive. She had to adjust a couple of things about how she's doing her classes. But she thanked me so profusely. She was like, I needed to get out of that situation. And I didn't quite realize it. And you know, for for a situation like that, that you could take all the antidepressants you want, or you can go to as much therapy as you want, but if you're in a situation that is just regularly leading to adverse emotional consequences for you, then, you know, maybe the thing to do is to really change the situation. And so I I feel like we need to sort of complement therapy, I'll put it that way, with a lot of more evolutionarily natural ways of dealing with distress and similar yeah. kinds of outcomes.
2: Yeah. I might use that as an anecdote, as a um, segue to the other condition I want to talk about was depression. Um, and uh, there's another question I forgot to ask you earlier, which maybe you can frame it up in this um, answer around. So depression um, reminds me again of um, Randy Ness's idea about um, unachievable goals where well, this woman was in a situation that just wasn't working and mm-hmm. is can depression sometimes be adaptive and it makes you stop and think and, and like ruminate and try and mm. come up with a solution um so that and just i forgot to ask earlier on can you describe this idea because in our area it's all about um the neurotransmitters and the cortisol and the bdnf and so forth in evolutionary psychology in this framework as i understand they talk about um, proximate and ultimate causes of yeah. um, mental illness. And, and it sounds like that the area that I sort of focus in is that sort of proximate, um, the mechanic, understanding the, mm. the engine, whereas the ultimate is more like the engineer understanding the design. So can you use as a framework to describe the, this concept of depression, how it may be adaptive?
0: Yeah, I, th- I really like how you talked about the, the proximate versus ultimate distinction. I think it's a very important thing for people to really understand. So from an evolutionary perspective, we can look at anything and we can think about it in terms of like, why does this happen or what is causing this? And from an evolutionary perspective or or even a really well-informed behavioral science perspective more generally, we can really appreciate, come to appreciate what I call multifactorial causation. So any any outcome is usually caused by lots of different things. And sometimes these causes can be proximate. So if someone is engaging in very violent behavior, sometimes we see problems with the amygdala in their brain as an example. So that's like Mm -hmm. an immediate physical kinds of thing that is causing the behavior. And sometimes we can think about sort of a more step back explanation, maybe this person was raised in an environment where they were exposed to a lot of violence across their lives, then we can think about even from a broader, more ultimate perspective, maybe under ancestral conditions, people who were violent under certain kinds of conditions were actually more likely to out survive and out reproduce others. and so we can think about any outcome or any behavior at, the, at these different levels. And the more that we can do that and the more that our research follows that, I feel like we develop a more a holistic and, and full understanding of the human experience. The other thing I tend to find is raising and teaching people about multifactorial causation and teaching them about ultimate versus proximate causes. It gets people to stop arguing. Now, not 100%. But a lot of times, like, you know, when the United States started having years ago and knock on wood, I hope it doesn't get this bad again. But this huge outbreak of all these random shootings, there was a huge thing in the United States where at the time it was some people were saying it's it's access to guns and it's gun laws and our history with guns. That's the problem. And then there's other people are saying, no, you're totally wrong. It's a mental health issue. And that's the problem. Um, and, and, and guess what? It's both. Like, I can guarantee you, you know, without even doing too much research on it, it's it's definitely both. And, and there's probably more factors going on underlying all these things as well. And so the more that we can educate people and so sort of understanding this level of nuance and, and understanding that anything like anxiety, aggression, depression, any of these like things that we see as psychological problems that we want to fix the more that we can genuinely embrace a multifactorial approach, the, the more accurate we're gonna be and the fuller our understanding of things is going to be. And like I said, it kind of stops people from arguing because instead of saying it's A versus B, well, it's probably both A and B and let's do research seeing, you know, how much of each of these things it it is. So when it comes to things like depression, Um, we can understand that in terms of the immediate level of neurotransmitters, chemicals in the brains that seem to have very dramatic effects on mood and on emotional states. And then we can also step back and look at this from a, a, a deep evolutionary perspective, like why did depression evolve in the first place? And you can't say that it really evolved because these neurotransmitters showed up in the brain. The question is, well, why did these neurotransmitters show up what was the, what were the evolutionarily selective pressures that sort of led to the emotion system and the the nervous system taking the form that it does? And, you know, evolutionary psychologists usually not, certainly not always, but usually will sort of take a step back perspective, looking at this in a, in a bigger frame and looking at something like depression, not in terms of the immediate details, like the neurotransmitters, but in terms of like, well, what's beneficial? Was there anything beneficial under ancestral conditions to being depressed under certain conditions? There's a great researcher named Matt Keller, who last I checked was at University of Colorado Boulder, who had done research again with Randy Nessie, who's renowned for studying mental health from an evolutionary perspective, and what keller found was that depression has different antecedents different causes and one of the main causes or one kind of depression seems to follow from if you really messed up so we live in a time now of like cancel culture for instance and you can imagine um i'm assuming maybe you know about the will smith incident recently right <laughs> and like yeah. yeah the slap and like like, I, I, you know, personally, Will Smith is one of my favorite actors. And I can't tell you how depressing I found that entire thing. <laughs> but you can imagine him maybe going into therapy. You know, I mean, this is going this is a life altering experience that yeah. he ended up having. And he's probably ruminating a lot. He's probably my guess is he's losing sleep. And when you think about, you know, why are you losing sleep? What are you doing when you're losing sleep? people are usually sitting there replaying problems over and over again. I can't believe this happened. How bad was it? What can I do next time? What can I, is there something I can do now in terms of um, damage control or something like this? Like rumination has has its place and it's a very common symptom of depression, but it is particularly a symptom of depression that seems to be preceded by some kind of error or failure as opposed to depression caused by loss of a loved one or something like that so we can actually look at different kinds of depressive symptoms and we can actually use an evolutionary framework to help understand when we would expect certain symptoms such as rumination more at certain times more so than at other times
2: All Right. All right, so I want to move on to positive evolutionary psychology because this is an area that you it sounds like have pioneered. And I don't know if it's a criticism of evolutionary psychology, but I do feel that some feel it's a bit sort of nihilistic that you know we're we're doomed to be anxious and depressed and so forth. Um, I find it sort of refreshing and it helps explain things, but I can see how people could find it a little bit sort of pessimistic. So it almost sounds like the antithesis that you're trying to put a positive spin on it. Can say, so can you explain? Yeah, the transition and what positive um, evolutionary psychology means and, and the, the difference.
0: Sure, sure. So I've been teaching courses related to evolution and behavior, literally going back to 1999 was the first course I taught in evolution and behavior. So does that make this my fourth decade where I'm teaching this stuff? That's, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> but I've been teaching this stuff for a long time. And one thing that you find when you teach this stuff is it, gets a certain amount of vitriol. It gets a certain mm-hmm. amount of, of hate, to be honest. It's, there are people, especially within the academy, within universities, who feel like the evolutionary perspective is somehow evil, is somehow promoting some kind of nasty agenda. And, and from my perspective, what I tend to see is there's certain things that evolutionary psychologists study and certain results that we tend to find that When you think about it, not from a scientific perspective, but from a moral perspective, Mm. these things might be kind of icky. So as an example, Daly and Wilson, highly renowned scholars in evolutionary psychology for years, found they studied jealousy and reactions to jealousy extensively. And one of their famous findings is that about one third of homicides in the modern industrialized world are caused by reactions to infidelity. And usually it takes the form of a guy was cheated on or thinks he was cheated on and, and he gets aggressive toward the female partner or he gets more likely he gets aggressive toward the interloper or the guy she was with or he dies somehow, you know, along the way as, as part of these interactions. And in combination, we're looking at about one third of the homicides seem to follow from that. Now, we can understand that from a scientific perspective, and we can understand how strong reactions to infidelity would have increased the likelihood that men would have been raising their own genetic biological offspring. And that seems to be probably where this strong psychology regarding infidelity and reacting to infidelity came from. But it's it's wicked icky. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. It's it's an ugly side of the human experience, it's a dark side of the human experience, and people don't, don't like it. And some people will hear that and they'll make what we like to call the moralistic fallacy, which is you're justifying male aggressive behavior, you're justifying men trying to keep women down, you're justifying violence toward women you're justifying all these things that are like you know terrible to to justify and to try to support so i kind of feel like because evolutionary psychology has largely studied these kinds of phenomena not with a political agenda but from a scientific perspective but people who people who hear it don't like it you know there are a lot of people who who hear this stuff and say oh that's that's the field that justifies bad male behavior. You know, there's a lot of people who will distill evolutionary psychology to that to that little that little bucket. And it is so disappointing to me be, for two reasons. One, I know a lot of people who are doing research on that topic and topics like that. These are not misogynists. These are not people with some kind of um, terrible patriarchal, Agenda trying to get men to read, you know, to, to take over the world and subdue women. These are scholars and scientists who are fascinated by the evolutionary perspective and who are trying to shed light on a better understanding of the human experience. So, you know, one problem I have with, with, with people distilling everything in evolutionary psych to, oh, it's that thing that supports the patriarchy and status quo you know, A, that's not really true. I mean, it's just not true. Studying these things scientifically is not the same as supporting these things morally. And I feel like people conflate these. So that's one problem. But a second problem is that if, if evolutionary psychology were a, a pie, the stuff on the dark aspects of the human experience, it's there, but it's just a slice of the pie. And that if you look at evolutionary psychology in a larger sense, and if you go to the conferences and you see the content being presented, there's tons of stuff that is about how can we better understand mental disorders from an evolutionary perspective with an effort to try to sort of improve mental health outcomes? How can we understand physical exercise and diet from an evolutionary perspective? Again, with an eye toward improving health-related outcomes, how can we understand community and altruism and cooperation from an evolutionary perspective with an eye toward making people better at building communities and and getting along better with one another and reducing aggression and in increasing helping behavior and pro-sociality such as the work of Dave, of david sloan wilson who's famous for that and it occurred to me that so many people are missing the boat. So many people hear one thing about evolutionary psychology and I've had people say to my face, oh, isn't that thing that said women should be in the kitchen or that, or that you know, women are sort of the problem of society? And I'm like, bruh, that's so wildly off. And not only is it wildly off, but even just that entire area of studying sex differences from an evolutionary perspective, that's just a very small slice of this larger picture so much of evolutionary psych is about the bright side of the human experience and we can better understand the bright side of the human experience positive emotional outcomes things like love things like positive relationship outcomes positive community outcomes you know how can we get a large group of people to work together to build something great how how can we get people to support each other, to be honest with each other, to sort of not betray each other, which a lot of my current research is, is, is examining. And the, Darwin's ideas were so powerful that when you start applying his ideas to these kinds of questions, which really are questions of positive psychology, how can we make for a richer, more positive experience across the broader human experience? Darwin's ideas have so much to add to that conversation. So the idea of positive evolutionary psychology, largely based in this book that I recently published with my former grad student, Nicole Wedberg, published by Oxford University Press, coming out in paperback this summer, by the way, I just had to put that out there. Um, the, the entire point is to, to sort of get people to, to stop and pause and think, you know, maybe evolutionary psychology is not exactly what you thought it is so it's an entire book length treatment of evolutionary reasoning and darwinian ideas applied exclusively or just about exclusively to the positives of the human experience
2: great can you just touch upon i've got the kindle version um uh, that makes sense because i'm trying to find a paperback version but i got the kindle version and yeah i was really impressed with the, the latter few chapters talking about this positive evolutionary psychology is it a couple sort of take-home um, gems or tips for listeners there's some good things around forgiveness and resilience and altruism what are some of the you know high-level um,
0: key messages you want to give to the audience today sure yeah I appreciate that that question Nathan um, and I'll, I'll try to I'll try to keep it brief but you know we got very excited when we were writing the last few chapters about what are the implications you know what does this have to say about human experience and one of the things there's a whole body of research about what's called reciprocal altruism an idea put Mm -hmm. forward by renowned evolutionary biologist robert trivers and it pretty much says that under some conditions a species will evolve where individuals help one another even if they're not related to each other because ultimately sort of mathematically they will get help paid back to one another in a way that's sort of mutually beneficial. And Trivers put together this idea that a whole lot of the complex emotions that humans experience, like feelings of guilt and shame and wanting to forgive, and all the sort of social moral emotions probably follow from the fact that reciprocal altruism was a foundational aspect of the human experience for a very long time. So, If you look at things that way, then everything about living in a small-scale society where individuals are engaging in a lot of reciprocal altruism, that leads to a lot of motivation to be perceived as honest, to be perceived as trustworthy, to be perceived as altruistic. And so much of our evolved psychology follows from that. There's a chapter that several students of mine, um, Jacqueline Planki and uh, or, I'm sorry, Jacqueline DeSanto and Julie Planki, published recently on reputation from an evolutionary perspective. And when we sort of carved out the details of this chapter, we put it really simply as people have mixed motivations um, from an evolutionary perspective. Part of our motivation is. To be selfish and to do things to benefit ourselves at a cost to others but because of the specific constellation of how we evolved in these small groups with a lot of non-kin we also evolved to get along with others because getting along with others would ultimately benefit ourselves and benefit our kin and so so many of the positive things about the human experience like building trusting bonds um the experience of love The experience of of forming coalitions, groups of people that sort of do things together, hunt together, or play together, or have fun together, these are all basic parts of the human experience. And to really understand our modern psychology and what does it mean to live the rich life, I feel like taking the evolutionary perspective and using it to think about how can this, what are the implications for pro-sociality, what are the implications for things like forgiveness? What is love from an evolutionary perspective and how can we take this knowledge and help cultivate so that we have more love in our lives? Which, you know, I would argue like most singer songwriters that love is in so many ways it is the answer. You know, like the older I get, the more I actually sort of come see myself to kind of believe that. So, well, what exactly is love and how does it follow from our evolutionary history and how can we use that information to sort of help amplify that part of our experience so there's lots and lots of ways that the evolutionary perspective can help us to sort of think about and live richer lives at the individual level at familial levels at relationship levels and at community levels and hopefully this book and this broader research trend can sort of push the dial a little bit and and Help people rethink what evolutionary psychology is, and hopefully, actually help people live richer lives along the way.
2: Beautiful, yeah. When when I was reading those later chapters, it really made me think that I I once not worried, but had this view that evolutionary psychology was somewhat removed or different from other philosophies like you know religions and and the mystics around forgiveness and all that sort of stuff. But I think that they're more compatible than than I, I once thought. When you have this positive um. On
0: yes I, I certainly do like like to think so um, I, you know a great example is found in the work of David Sloan Wilson who made a big career as an evolutionary biologist at, at Binghamton and unlike a lot of evolutionists who talk about religion usually when you hear evolution and religion you're talking about you're talking about butting heads and you mm. know Richard Dawkins I love him, by the way. Think the world of him, but famous for getting himself into trouble for being, <laughs> you know, not very polite about about religious believers. But we can take a different perspective. The perspective that David takes is we can use evolution not as a way to show religious people that they're wrong at their core about their belief about the world, but we can use evolution to help shed light on what is religion, where does it come from, and what are the, in what ways did it benefit our ancestors. And in what ways is it beneficial now? I mean, every attempt to get rid of religion that's ever taken place has failed and led to all kinds of conflict. So David Wilson's approach is, well, maybe we can actually use evolution to help understand religion. And that might actually be a, be a somewhat conciliatory way to sort of integrate the two. And so, so I, I do think, I think that the positive evolutionary psych approach is trying to sort of make those conciliatory connections as much as we can.
2: Great. All right, so just as we wrap up, I'm just curious, how does it, how's it shaped your life? Like, particularly like from that, you know, um, social perspective, do you, you know, um, ensure that you do community activities or volunteer or what's some of the the things that you practically do in your your life that's um, come from this positive evolutionary psychology?
0: Sure, yeah, it's a great question. And it's funny because I'm actually in an all-professor rock band, questionable priorities, (laughs) and We all have nicknames. We've been together since 2003, actually. Um, We like to say longer than the Beatles. And my nickname is the caveman. (laughs) So we all have band nicknames. And I'm partly the caveman because I'm pretty unabashedly, I eat paleo, you know, reasonably, maybe 95%. But for the most part, I eat paleo. I'm a marathon runner. I go out of my way. I, I lift weights regularly. I hike regularly. I lead student groups into the mountains here. On a regular basis, um, I very much do try to sort of practice "quote what I what I preach." Um, I will teach my students about the evils of social media and cell phones, and you know, whatever class I teach, my students they'll laugh when I when they hear the word "cell phone" because you know, just while while I use it as much as as the next guy does, I also know full well that these things are evil and are causing major problems in so many ways. Um, because you know social media and modern techno communication technology is so evolutionarily mismatched um in terms of my community i I'm, I'm on the board for the friends of the local library and i have been for oh gosh almost two decades now and you know I, I i'm co-chair of our campus's well-being committee so i do think kind of like like you're you're suggesting nathan is that i i when you live this stuff and breathe this stuff and are thinking about this stuff all day long it does kind of seep out into into behaviors and i and i hope in my own case i'm hoping that it has in a reasonably positive kind of way
2: sounds like it glenn's been brilliant to talk to you um just to wrap up how can for people that are uninitiated in this area you got any recommendations for for next steps or any resources you could recommend for them to start to understand more about evolutionary psychology and positive evolutionary psychology?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, there the two, two books that I wrote that I think are good introductions to this idea. The one is called Evolutionary Psychology 101, um, which really is designed to be a basic level introduction to evolutionary psych. The basic ideas, but also anticipating a lot of the positives that we talk about regarding positive evolutionary psychology. So, there's a very big section about altruism, pro-social behavior, sections about love and parenting and community, and my next book in that sort of series, I guess, would be Positive Evolutionary Psychology, which sort of takes that a step further and really paints an entire book-length treatment about how can we use this, these ideas to paint a positive picture or advance a positive, agenda for the human experience so th- between that and my blog that I write for psychology today which is called Darwin's subterranean world really there's a lot of stuff there that is on point with that I would say that um, there are some great researchers and writers that are, are d- writing and doing work that's parallel David Sloan Wilson's work I think is really important. He talks about pro-sociality, and he's written several great books. One that I recommend strongly is called Evolution for Everyone, which does an amazing job of describing the basics of evolution and then applying it to the human experience, but in a way that really sort of gets us to think about being pro-social and civic-minded and very much the opposite of what people often stereotype evolutionary scholarship as. So those are... Those are some, some places I think I would start. And if any of your listeners want to give me an email and, and ask for more resources, I'd be more than glad to, to talk to them.
2: Great. Uh, well, thank you for your time. I wasn't expecting to talk about religion and Will Smith and all those things, but it's been very uh, informative and entertaining. It's been enlightening. Light, lightening. Um, thanks again for your time. You've been very generous. And, um, yeah, I wish you all the best.
0: Yeah, thanks. You too, Nathan. I appreciate being here. Thank you.
1: useful links and resources make sure you check out the show notes the information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice